This is Ray Mumford, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned in to episode 3.11 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions. And our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. I hope you all are having a great February out there. We've been having some amazing riding conditions in Nevada's Ruby Mountains lately. I've been hearing the same thing from many of our guests, and that quote is, wow, that was the best day of skiing of my life. So how can we manage to take people skiing in elevated avalanche hazard? Comes down to terrain choices. We utilize a rich history of experience and pictures to see exactly where avalanches tend to run in our ski runs. We then use terrain margins to keep people on the terrain that is more avalanche resistant. We utilize a run list that is put together in our morning meeting to take out the subjective and emotional human-based decision-making in the field. If one of us doesn't feel comfortable going somewhere, we take a tactical pause and reevaluate our terrain choices. We slow down to stay safe. I feel lucky to be part of such a high-functioning organization with talented and skilled guides that take pride in our decisions and communication. You too can implement all of these tenants in your organization or even within your backcountry ski partners. Make it intentional, folks. Unfortunately, there were two fatalities in Utah within the same week last week. In both of these accidents, there was either a lack of rescue gear or a lack of knowledge of how to use that rescue gear. I've added a link to an emotional video that was put together during the accident report of one of these avalanche fatalities. The friend of the victim talks about what happened. I'd encourage you to check it out. I also encourage you to think about your friends and family who may recreate in an avalanche environment without the proper equipment or know-how to use it. Please talk to them. Encourage them to take an avalanche rescue course or an avalanche course. Show them this video. These are the type of accidents that are very much avoidable. Let's do better, folks. Congratulations to Blaine Woods, who is this month's winner of the El Professional Snow Saw. Crafted and hand sharpened by Primo Snow and Avalanche. It's lightweight and cuts straight. All Blaine did to win this saw was tag at the Avalanche Hour podcast and at Primo Snow and Avalanche in an Instagram post. Congrats to Blaine on passing your Pro 1 as well. Be the next winner by tagging us in a post from your pit or backcountry adventure. I've got a one-two punch for you today on the episode. This episode dovetails with 3.10 as we hear about some more history of the Avalanche Safety Program with the Colorado Department of Transportation. We'll lead out with Ray Mumford, who in 1974, after his military service, started a job with the Colorado DOT. At first, he was plowing snow and operating equipment but he quickly carved out a special niche for himself as an avalanche hunter. Ray talks specifically about the evolution of tools in the toolbox to mitigate for avalanches on Colorado's highways. The second interview of the show will feature John Cameron. John's a professional patroller from Monarch Mountain. 
he and Eric Miller decided they wanted to tell the stories of the past generations of ski patrollers from Colorado. They've put together a great book that works to tell the stories of the legacy of the bamboo farmers and avalanche warriors in Colorado. Without further ado, let's jump in with Ray. Ray, thanks for sitting down with me today. I really sure. enjoyed your, your talk at the Colorado Snow and Avalanche Workshop this morning. Thank you. I was wondering if you could, uh, I was hoping you could just introduce yourself, give your background in the snow and avalanche world, some of the roles that you've played for the Colorado Department of Transportation. Okay, well, my name is Ray Mumford. I uh, started with the uh, Colorado Department of Transportation back in 1974 and became active with the avalanche control program in, in 1975, more or less just, just tagging along to, to be the grunt, to be the, the gopher stuff. And, and uh, just from, from that point on, it just kind of morphed into becoming more active. And then in the uh, mid eighties, uh, uh, pretty much became the, the, the senior gunner in, in the northern mountains and then assisted in the training in the southern mountains and then in the 1990s from the 1990s on pretty much was all avalanche I, I, you know, I was still a supervisor on the highways for CDOT but uh, you know, my, my job with the avalanche become started taking over at that point so. so I asked you earlier if you were the avalanche guy turned highway guy or the highway guy turned avalanche guy and could you talk a little bit about how that came about? Yeah, just just when I when I when I hired on, I, I was just fresh out of the army. I was in air defense artillery in the army, and uh, so uh, when I hired on up up in the in in the mountains, they saw that I had just came out of the army with the artillery, and they asked if I wanted to help out with the artillery program within the on the highway department. And so that's where I took off from is right there. And uh, at, I was still working the roads, doing the snowplow driving equipment operation and everything. But when it came time to go do shoot the avalanches, then I'd, I'd pull off and go help with that. So, so can you talk about the, the history of the avalanche safety program with CDOT, how that came about when they saw the need for that and, and some of the history? You just told me you're a fifth generation uh, Coloradan and... And uh, so I'm sure there's some rich history there involving mining and industry and, and the pioneering of the state. Yeah, well, my, my family were, were, was in the, the farming ranching when they, when they homesteaded in Colorado. And then, uh, you know, we, 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 our idea of a, a, a vacation was to take a, come up to the mountains in the, for a weekend or, or just sometimes just a picnic up in the mountains. But once I got out of the Army, uh, had a little bit of skiing, always loved the mountains, so I wanted to work in the mountains, and, and that's where I started. It came with, with CDOT. So, and uh, the, the avalanche program at the start was pretty haphazard. There, there really wasn't a program. It was almost seemed like it was back in those days, if it was a nice day, somebody would say, oh, let's go shoot some avalanches. Mm. And that was it. There wasn't any forecasting or, or anything. The Forest Service every now and then would help us out on that, but uh, there, there, there really wasn't uh, uh, any reasoning behind it at all when we just went out to do it, and a lot of luck involved <laughs> during those days. And so, so who would make that call? Was that a, a highway supervisor? A highway supervisor, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And so how did that evolve over time? Well, over time, as, as you know, the, the traffic become heavier and everything, it just, just it, the, the need became more, you know, to, to, to start being more active with avalanche control. And then started getting fatalities. The highway workers started getting killed, you know, primarily down in the southern mountains. We had one or two up in the northern mountains. But the Avalanche Center became more involved with, with CDOT. And then after the last CDOT worker that was killed, that's when the Avalanche Center and, and, uh, and CDOT joined up, joined partners where they provided the Avalanche forecasters to work with CDOT. And that was in 1992? 1992, yes. Okay. So, so previous to that, from, you know, say the 80s through 92, what, what sort of tools did you have to mitigate the highway? Well, we used the, uh, the 75 millimeter pack howitzer. It was a small artillery weapon. Uh, it was almost World War I vintage. Uh, the, the guns we had were fresh out of World War II. We had two of them. That was the only two weapons we had in the state back in the, in the 70s. Were just those one for the northern mountains, one for the southern mountains. Uh, they were really effective, nice little weapons. They were easy to pull to the different sites, and uh, they worked well. But just finally ran out of ammunition, and so then we we moved into the recordless rifle, and uh, we used them for well the 105 recordless for almost 10 years, and then we went to the 106. And as I said in the presentation, we thought that was going to be the future of CDOT's program. We got 14 of those guns, but we only used them for two years because of the uh, uh, fatality in, in California put some real, real hard restrictions on the use of that gun that just didn't work for CDOT's operation. So then we went to the helicopter from that point on. For three years, we used nothing but the helicopter on the big slides and Gosh, it seemed like I was up in the helicopter a couple times a week, uh, just flying missions all the time for those three years. And then we finally got the, the 105 howitzer that we use today. Okay. Um, so what, what would your day-to-day look like on a, on a mitigation morning? Oh, gosh. You know, it, 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 it'd be getting up early in the morning. Uh, I, since I worked up on Loveland Pass, uh, that I was a supervisor up there, so I, I would be up at two o'clock in the morning, be out on the road, and I checked the conditions. It was pretty easy to tell when we needed to do some control work, and so I, if, if, if it was to that point, I'd let the avalanche forecasters know what was going on, and they would either give me, oh, I think we can go another day, or let's let's get it done. So then we'd set it up, and I'd call the crews in and and uh, the gun crews and. We start getting ready to do the control work. You know, whether depending on the avalanche path, whether it be the avalanche or the howitzer or or some other ways of mitigation. So, and it must take a lot of coordination with the traffic control, and then having the resources to clean up the road after mitigation work has been done, um, it, and your missions going. Yeah, right. it, it did. You know, the traffic control is a was a big thing to try to make sure everything is all the people were contacting everything to get that taken care of because you know as i-70 the traffic is just unbelievable and uh, so yeah it's a lot of work to get all that put together so ray something you just mentioned was the avalanche and and you you spoke earlier about some of the artillery evolution Um, can you speak to some of the pros and cons of of the avalanche and how you've seen it evolve over time 
Well, the avalanche, you know, it, it was it was a, it's it's a good good control weapon uh, if it's used properly. Uh, you know, it, it it on the smaller avalanche pads, the short range pads, uh, but there's there's some safety issues with it. You know, when we had that round detonate in the chamber, that changed everything for us, and uh, so we we started looking at that point into better ways of, of getting it done without the avalanche and the cost of the avalanche round started going up uh, a lot so uh, that was some of the things that made us start looking into these different racks uh, systems you know remote avalanche control systems okay so, so like the Gazex. the Gazex, yes uh-huh. and you were involved in doing some research on these on these systems and then the implementation of those yeah, yeah. When 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 we first started looking into it, uh, it was with a, a a committee that started trying to decide what what would be a better route, and and uh, depending on the avalanche path, the Gazex uh, kept on coming up to the front, and uh, so that we we went with that. On, on we have two installations now. Uh, a, a third, uh, it's we're finishing up this year, but the, you know the, the 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 Seven Sisters Avalanche area on Loveland Pass has 11 Gazex exploders and then on the, the Stanley Avalanche Path on Bertha Pass has, has five exploders over there that we've been using now for three years. When did the first ones go in? They, they went in, we became operational in uh, 2015. Uh-huh. Awesome. So pretty good luck with those and, and uh, how's the maintenance with them? The maintenance is, you know, that you have to stay with it. You you cannot, you have to stay up on it. But really, the maintenance is uh, compared to the the man man hours that that it took to get the howitzer set up and and the avalanche and the crew size and everything else. Uh, where the maintenance, they go up uh, in in the spring for the, the the shutdown and do a quick check. Then they go back up in the, in the summer when all the snow is gone, do all their maintenance. And then one more time in the fall to to, to replace the gas. Uh, the crews now are are, are about well, about a half a dozen people that go up there and do the work. So it, compared to the to the to the, to the man hours taken to get set up for the howitzers, to get and the cleaning of them afterwards and everything, it's 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 still quite a bit less with the gasics than what would have took with the artillery stuff. Right. Right. What changes to the avalanche forecasting and mitigation program for CDOT have have brought about the biggest impact for the public, in your opinion? Well, I think becoming more conscious, you know, and knowing that we've got to do everything we can to keep the roads open as for as much as we can. You know, Interstate 70 gets shut down for 10 minutes. It takes two hours to clear out. Mm-hmm. So, so we're looking to. So we have to be more efficient with our, with our control work, which which has been taken. You know, we that's the biggest thing is be conscious of that traffic. We can't just say, oh, let's go shoot. We have to say, oh, now, what about this traffic? How are we going to deal with this? So, and it, it, it's evolving. We're moving into some different types of control work and a different timing of it. So I think that's the biggest impact on the traveling public. Yeah, I was talking to Jamie uh, yesterday about um, how he's planning on implementing some more nighttime mm-hmm. mitigation work, which I think seems like a great opportunity. That would be huge. Yeah. You, you know, know, the name of a game for avalanche control is, is, is if you can go in there and get your job done and get out of there and nobody even realize you're there, then it's successful. Right, yeah. So I think that, that seems like it would, it would really help out. 
So Ray, what we talked, to, we've been talking about avalanche closures and some some active mitigation techniques through artillery, avalanchers, and racks. What about some passive avalanche mitigation techniques that CDOT utilizes? Well, the, the, they uh, they don't have a lot of passive compared to like in Europe where it's such a big big deal, but. But they do have, you know, a couple of snow sheds uh, over on Red Mountain Pass, on Wolf Creek Pass, uh, some deflection dams that is used, and a, a wind drift fence. And I, I'd like to kind of see them move into different other passive, uh, the snow fencing, just to hold the snowpack in place. And there are some environmental concerns about that, but but uh, I think it's a, it's a trade-off if, you know, you, you put the snow fencing up there, that, that takes that avalanche pass out of the equation for control work which means you don't have all that shrapnel laying up there from artillery or, or different avalanches the, the the dud rates and different things like that so it's a trade-off but that snow fencing holding that snowpack in place up there where you don't even have to worry about it you know because as time goes on using explosives there's going to be more and more restrictions put on them as we as we move forward so we got to start looking for different ways hmm. yeah absolutely Right. Through, I hear that you've had a hard time retiring from your position. <laughs> uh, what, what do you see as, as your most favorite part of the job, oh, looking the, back the, on your career? Dealing with nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, there's not very many jobs in this at all in anywhere that, that your, 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 your very life depends on what Mother Nature throws at you. And it's, it's, that's, that's the biggest the challenge, and that's what's most enjoyable, too. Have you ever been surprised out there? Oh yeah, yeah. You care to sh- share a story about getting surprised ever? Well, you know, you you, you think all oh, you know, you look at everything, you know, and I I'm, I'm not the expert, you know, the avalanche forecasters that, but you think oh, this is it's not going to slide, and then all of a sudden there it is. We we had an instant, uh, the Stanley Avalanche Pass. It's it's a big one, and. Uh, we went. We, we we flew the helicopter and we put 130 pounds of explosives in that start zone, and we got nothing. And then two days later, the winds came up, and before we could scramble to get things moving, the avalanche slid on a Saturday morning and hit two cars. And uh, you know that was an eye opener there. And, and you know up until that morning, we thought we were good because that was our goal. That's always to be looking. You know, making sure before a weekend hits, you know, and uh, I, yeah, I, th- I personally thought that was, but that changed my thinking real quick on that. So, and did that change your approach moving forward throughout your career? Was that kind of a, a- it did uh, prior to that? Uh, our, uh, our, our, you know, we, we, as far as shooting the artillery and everything, it, it had to be where we had to have perfect visibility of the, of the avalanche start zone before we could shoot and that was one of the drawbacks there that, that we would have set up a shot earlier that morning but we knew we wouldn't be able to see uh, so now that from that point on uh, CDOT started working into to getting that cleared where we could could fire under limited visibility we didn't have to have that visibility of the start zone to, to be able to to get to take a shot up there and now we're moving even further into the nighttime firing mm-hmm. so. so and what allowed that what allowed you all to do that just restrictions being lifted or mm-hmm. politics yeah just well mostly just the restrictions oh. you know and then we had to go through quite a process to 
to get that cleared through the through the upper management of CDOT and everything. But it was it was a process, but thank goodness we got it done. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed you talking about um, just sort of the different configurations of some of the some of the weapons that you used mounted in trucks, pulled on trailers, and and kind of the learning curve on using some of these in a highway application. Uh, specifically, maybe you could speak to. Uh, the, the issues, I believe it was with the 106 and the and the windshields of your trucks. Well, you know, it, it, every you know those the 106 is uh, like I said the the shorter barrel and that muzzle blast just played havoc on our on our windshields and it just it, we'd have to drive back to the shop looking through little cracks or or without a windshield at all sometimes you know so just just different little things like there we were constantly having to make adjustments whenever we got a new weapon we, here we go again <laughs> so <laughs> let's figure it out yeah um so how often would you would y'all um fire those weapons without snow just to sight in your targets is that something that would occur no uh it pretty much just because of the traffic situation it's hard to to get the guns out there and 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 shoot without snow and and plus you know the environmental problems too of mm -hmm. sending shells up there, uh, so we had to wait till the avalanche hazard was there before we started shooting, and uh, you know when we got the howitzer it was quite involved to to dial the, the shots in with the howitzer all the other artillery was just a direct shot he just looked up and shot, but with the howitzer and and uh, how how it was set up. There was some pretty involved calculations to, to, that we took to get those shots dialed in. And I assisted, uh, me and another guy went and did every howitzer shot across the state when we first got those. So that was quite the challenge. You personally? Yeah, me and, and one other guy, Ed Fink. Wow. Uh, was, we, we went to across all the, the paths and did the calculations, yeah. Uh -huh. um. Talk about some of the limitations with with using the artillery near firing it near ridge lines, right? Because there's a there's a huge um, concern about over firing shots, over yes. shots on the ridge lines. So maybe just speak to that a little bit. If you well, mind. you know, with the howitzer, it's it's like like Jamie said in his presentation, it's it's you know 60, 70 year old technology, where you know we can do all the all our calculations and everything, but there's still some variances in those shots where, you know, some of them are going to go a little higher than you think, some are going to go lower. So you always have to take that into account. The temperatures make a big difference in where those shots are going to go. And uh, so you're always thinking about that and making sure that that, that, that shell is going to, going to hit the broad side of a mountain. That's, going to, that's what you need it, want it to do, you know. So. Have you ever had anything go over a ridge we haven't not with the howitzer no awesome. occasionally with an avalanche but they just go a few hundred feet on the other side you know? sure right but the howitzer knock on wood it's we're not it, it, that we haven't had that no that's good um you spoke a little bit about case charges is that something that you had a hand in mm -hmm. implementing and yeah. maybe you could because I, I actually hadn't heard of that being used um, at the bottom of a avalanche path until Jamie talked about it yesterday. So maybe speak to that a bit. Yeah, you know, we, we, we got that, that uh, from some of our, our cohorts in, in, in Canada. They gave us the idea to try it instead of using the avalanche. Boy, what a success that has been. That, that, that blast from the bottom going up that slope is, 
is is uh, and putting that pressure on that snowpack. It's it's a big big difference in than using the Avalancher. So how big of a charge is that? It, it can vary. Uh, normally it's around thirty pounds, mm -hmm. uh, but some of the bigger ch charges we you know we use up to fifty pounds on on you know over on Grand Mesa and Vail Pass we use big shots over there. And so you might only be need to use four or five case charges, whereas with the Avalancher you were shooting twenty rounds. Yes. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. And you know, you do the math on that, where the Avalancher rounds now is close to two hundred dollars per round, where the case charge, a thirty pound case charge, is about twenty five dollars. Mm. So it's a big difference in the cost. Yeah. And that's that's all important stuff because it's it's the taxpayers' you bet. money, right? Yeah. And, and they are your customers, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Ray, any other stories you got? Any close calls? Or I know you, I'm well, sure you got some stories in there. You know, close calls, that, that avalanche accident uh, is the biggest close call. Mm. You know, I, I was there when it happened. I was the only one that wasn't hurt in that uh, of, the, of the gun crew. So, yeah, I, I think about that every day almost, you know. So what happened? Uh, well, just uh, just a round detonated inside the avalanche and mm -hmm. uh, seriously injured the other crew members. And I was just luckily was behind the pickups so that a blast went right over right over the top of me, and uh, so I wasn't affected by it and uh, nobody knows exactly what happened it was you know in in the round because the key evidence was vaporized basically so but that was one of those things where you think oh it's just an, another day out shooting and you know there's no no such thing as a routine mission that's for sure yeah and had other close calls or you know, working Loveland Pass and the Seven Sisters area is just a whole series of different avalanche paths in a you know, within a quarter of a mile, and one slide would come down, and then before I could get out of there, a slide behind me came down, so there I was stuck until they could get equipment there to get get it dug out to get, and that's happened, and we've had people caught in there before too, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. And big snow events, that storm of 2003, we had seven feet of snow in 36 hours, and just slides were coming everywhere, and that was a scramble. We were going as hard as we could. So, mm -hmm. Ray, do you have any advice for for younger avalanche workers that are that are using avalanche mitigation techniques uh, or or tools? Um, just any advice for for the younger generation coming up? Don't cut corners. <laughs> you know, d d just just don't cut corners. I mean, you use the same procedure every time that that you know works. Uh, and you just think, oh, I don't need to do it this way. Don't do it that way. You know, just be careful. Mm -hmm. How have you dealt with the pressure of trying to open the highway? Because there, you know, there's a lot of people that are counting on you to get to work or get, pick their kids up or do their job. Yes, you know that that is tough, and and. You just have to, boy. You have to be conscious of that for sure, you know. And and you you just do everything you can, but you reach to the point, you finally just say, well, we did all we could, and and maybe we just have to go ahead and open the road, you know. Is right then, it's it's a gut check, you know, to know when if 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 it's the right time to do it. But yeah, it is a tough decision to make. To, do we keep that road closed where people might have to drive a hundred miles around to get to where they're wanting to go? 
or Mr. Flight or, or whatever, yeah. So how did you deal with that in your career? How did you deal with that uncertainty? Because in the Avalanche game, man, it's pretty hard to be 100% Get, certain. I don't think there's ever 100%. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, it's, it's tough. You just, you know, you, the forecasters, you know, they, they know the snow. They helped us out a lot in that, you know. And, and so it, we do the test and we did everything we, we could. And if, if it didn't slide, we just... You know, we, we just got to say, okay, we gave it the test, and, and uh, so we know what's up there. And sometimes you just hold your breath. I don't, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a tough decision to make sometimes, for sure. Yeah, I'm sure accompanied by some sleepless nights yep. and, and some, some periods of stress. Yeah. Well, Ray, thanks for sitting down with me today. I really appreciate sure. chatting with you and, and hearing about some of the history of CDOT and your career and, and the work that you've done. Thank you. All right, cheers. A big thanks to Ray for doing your part to keep the traveling public safe in Colorado throughout your career. As we were talking, it was so evident how much Ray cared about his job and it was invigorating to see his eyes light up when he would talk about conducting avalanche mitigation missions. Thanks again, Ray. To continue with our historical theme within Colorado, John Cameron will talk about the book he and Eric Miller put together to record some of the history of ski patrolling in the Rocky Mountain State. Make sure to check out their website www.coloradoskipatrol.co where there are links to job postings, blog posts, great photos, and even some podcast episodes. Tune in with John. Here we go. All right, we're sitting here with John Cameron, and John is a longtime ski patroller. Welcome to the show, John. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. So, John, how did this whole thing come about, this ski patrol in Colorado book? So it started... Up at Monarch Mountain at uh, at the base clinic, Eric Miller is um, is an ALS volunteer at the mountain, and I was patrolling at the time. And um, he pitched this idea to me uh, about putting together a book because um, in in the off season I work as a kind of a journalist and a newspaper writer, and and together we had the idea of of collecting and, and sharing these stories. And he had already reached out to the publisher, and it's it's Arcadia Publishing, and they make those uh, history books, those familiar sepia-colored history books about mining and, and different areas around this, the state. And uh, it's actually a national publisher, and they'd never done anything with with ski patrol. At first, we had to kind of explain what uh, what ski patrol in Colorado was, and um, so we we started meeting with different people and, and getting some of these photos that, that we could use in the book. We tried to cover as many areas in Colorado as we could and um, find like the old stories. And it started with me, you know, talking to a patrol director here and there and, and asking to see pictures and they'd pull out a, a drawer in the, in the clinic or in their desk or something of just old Polaroid photos. And we were just flipping through a lot of old Polaroid photos and they were just, crazy wild photos you know they're just snapping all over the place and um, they all have a story to them and a lot of those stories are just kind of getting forgotten getting shoved in a drawer and uh, as we're sitting around 
uh, patrolling one day. We're telling our own stories and realizing there's a little bit of value to this. I think it's really fun to hear, and I'm really interested in hearing them from other people, especially people that have patrolled longer and been around a lot longer than I have. And um, So we started to collect these and put them together and asking around, and, and um, what we have is a book of some of the best photos that we were able to come up with uh, this first round here. So I think a lot of the, the history and um, the knowledge that comes with these stories and these photos, there's a real value to um, knowledge that gets passed along when there's a lot of turnover in a, a ski area or in a patrol organization. A lot of this, um, um, a lot of this knowledge just kind of gets lost. And um, everything from snow safety and um, having an awareness of, of terrain and things within the mountain resort um, that are really important to keep from year to year, um, these stories are, are part of that. And they're part of what people have done to establish these areas and create uh, really functional uh, patrol organizations. Um, and so I think what, what we've done by by gathering a lot of these photos is try to help keep some of this, um, keep some of these stories and keep some of this history alive. John, just as you're kind of flipping through the book there, any, any photos that you can describe to the listeners that, that are kind of unique? Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of the photos, uh, about half the book is, is older shots. Um, I really tried to find the, the, the black and white, the ones that were shot on film and one thing you do kind of notice a lot is that um, the equipment and the, and the technology has changed. Um, and the, the further back you go, you see just huge toboggans and litters and uh, equipment that would be really difficult to load. And it'd be a lot harder to do the job today than, than it would be with the stuff we have, especially when you look at the different skis and the different types of bindings. Um, a lot of that technology has changed a lot, whereas... In some regard, the first aid stuff like quick splints and cravats are still the same thing that they've been using the whole time. Um, and so the photo will look really dated from, from the equipment, um, especially when before they had the toboggans, they were just loading people on sleds and bending over and, and just holding on to the sleds with their hands. They didn't even have horns on them. Um, so they had tail ropes and just leaned over and carried these sleds out and slid people out. It was really rudimentary back then too. Um, they just kind of made made do with the equipment they had, um, and it was not until 1946 or so that they started bringing out toboggans that that you would probably recognize. They had the Sun Valley toboggans, which were the hickory, the the wooden toboggans with the big hickory um, slats on them, and they took a Stokes litter that would mount on it and. Um, these are all handmade toboggans and they're, they're real cool pieces of machinery and they were intended to come apart into different pieces because they were so heavy. They had to be hauled back up into position. You took the horns off and carried them separate from the sled and you carried that separate from the, the litter and then all the supplies that were in the litter. The things weighed a couple hundred pounds all together. And um, I've, seen, I've actually skied a patient several patients in a Sun Valley. I know that when I worked at Park City Mountain Resort, they still used Sun Valleys. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they were still there <laughs> somewhere. Um, but some really, really cool looking old, 
old equipment in there. So, and are the stories and photos chronological in the book or? Yeah, for the most part, the book is told chronologically. Um, so the book is um, separated into three main sections here and they kind of correspond with uh, the technology of the time. Um, the, the first part being kind of like the older technology, a little bit more rudimentary, um, just trying to figure it out. It begins with the uh, 10th Mountain Division and kind of the establishment of um, organized mountain rescue in Colorado. And then when the, um, the EMT and um, the highway um, department, let's see, highway transportation administration put together the, the EMT, um, that became the, the standard that they begin to use on the mountains. Um, and so the middle segment is about kind of like how um, emergency response on the mountain began to change and how um, on-hill clinics became a thing. Um, and like a rapid medical response became the norm across, across mountains. Um, mainly in, in Aspen and Vail were kind of first on scene with some of that new um, medical stuff. And then the last section really talks about how um, ski patrol has become like a really rounded profession when you start to add meteorology and snow science and um, yet more advanced um, knowledge. With the medical side of things. Yeah, with the medical side, but also patrol just takes on a lot bigger role when you start thinking about... Um, uh, investigating accidents that happen on the hill. Um, that's like a something that patrol does a lot now. And uh, the, the job of a ski patroller has expanded over the years. From at first, the, back when tickets were sold for the first time, they said, here's your ticket, have fun skiing. If you get hurt, it's not our fault. To where avalanche mitigation and uh, medical response is a huge part of what ski patrol does is, and is expected to do. Um, there's a ticket from 1936, a tow ticket, 25 cents. Um, the ski club is not responsible for any accident or injury right there on the ticket. So that's been the really consistent from the very beginning is, uh, of, you know, lift access skiing. So it's, it's fun to be able to flip through and kind of see how that's, that's progressed. How did, uh, how did the whole National Ski Patrol come around and any history in the book about that? Yeah, so National Ski Patrol first started on the East Coast. I think it was Vermont. Um, yeah, the National Ski Patrol was established in, in 1938 by uh, Charles Dole. He went by Minnie. Um, but the headquarters was moved to Denver from uh, New England in 1949. And then um, it was incorporated in 1953. And... Um, when he stepped aside, when Minnie Dole stepped aside as the uh, director, um, his successor, Edward Taylor, took over on the conditions that the headquarter would stay in, in Denver. And so that's what brought it out here um, to Denver. And, and they've been organizing kind of ski patrol um, and have been kind of the industry rep ever since um, with the um, outdoor emergency care. You know, it's been a, a big part of, of ski patrol. But Ski Patrol specifically in Colorado along that same time was um, was heavily influenced by the 10th Mountain Division. Mm -hmm. And uh, Minnie Dole himself uh, was one of the only civilians, if, if not the only civilian, that was tasked with staffing or recruiting for the military. Um, 
the military actually reached out to him and said, I think you probably have a good idea of, of who would fit for this. And so um, Minnie Dole, um, the director of National Ski Patrol, was able to do a lot of recruiting for the 10th Mountain and bring people out from New England, from these different places to um, to be part of the 10th Mountain Division and um, fight during World War II. And then when a lot of those guys came back, of course, they had like a connection to, to skiing after that. Um, they had strong connections before, but then they were definitely motivated to, to ski afterwards. Um, they came on back to the United States after World War II and ended up putting together ski patrols at Aspen. They started Vail Mountain. And um, there's a whole long list of people that were part of the 10th Mountain Division that were hugely influential in the ski industry. Um still today, but getting it established in Colorado and making it what it is. Wow. I guess I didn't realize it had that much influence. You got some great photos in that book of of 10th Mountain Division training. Yeah, there's 10th Mountain Division. Um, They they practice over in Camp Hale, um, which is over by Leadville, uh, along the Continental Divide. Ski Cooper is a mountain that's operating today, and that was a big area where they practiced at the time. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of that 10th Mountain history that you can find around Colorado. Uh, but when they started working with the National Ski Patrol, they really started putting it together kind of in the, in the form that we know. Yeah. Well, we can't give away all the stories in the book. Yeah, you got to save some. We'll save some. But uh... So, John, where can people find out more about this book or order the book? And can you talk a little bit about the, the website you got? Yeah, so... Um, when we put the book together, uh, we also put together a kind of a website as a little companion. Um, what we have on that is some more long form stories and a place that we could show more stories and videos and, and other, other media and stuff. So the, the website is, is Colorado ski patrol.co. Um, the book is available there. There's going to be a link or there's a link that you can use to, to get the book there. Um, the book is also available, um, on the big online retailer, but my favorite place would be the the small bookshops. A lot of the local little independent bookshops in Colorado have it. Um, and that's, that's a good place to look first. Um, I want to try to really support those small businesses because as much as people talk about print media and, and journalism kind of dying, I don't think it is, you know, and I think if we support it then it won't, and there's still a place for a lot of good stuff like that. And so, um, independent bookstores around Colorado, the best, best place to look. If not Colorado ski patrol.co. Any social media shout outs? You guys have an Instagram account? Oh yeah. Um, we also have a, an Instagram at Colorado ski patrol. And, um, that's a great spot to check out photos and things. And I post current stuff there and, um, and also little clips from the book every once in a while. And that's a good place to follow. Yeah. And if you have stuff, we're still, it's a, even though the book is in print, um, it's still a, a process of collecting stories and, and still telling those stories. And so I think that this is just going to be a start um, to this whole thing. And I would love to capture as many of these photos and stories as we can and have a place for them to be. You also mentioned that you might be trying to get some recorded audio stories from folks. Um, so, you know, if you're a ski patroller out there and you want to 
record some some oral history, get a hold of John. Yeah, great. Thanks. That's uh, and we're just now getting into the process and playing with the equipment for recording. But there's a lot of potential to to talk to people just like you are um, about these types of things. And if you have anything, um, we do have an email, Colorado Ski Patrol at Gmail. So we got Colorado Ski Patrol locked up nice. for all this this project here. And it's a great way to reach us, me and Eric, both. Awesome. Well, it's it's evident that there's a lot of work that went into this book, and and uh, it's an ongoing process. And I think it's a it's one that um, we commend you for, for recording some of this history. So thanks for doing what you're doing, John. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Hey, thanks. All right, cheers. Well, I sure hope you enjoyed the show today. Big thanks to Ten Barrel Brewing and TAS Gazex for your support. When you are staring in awe at all the microbrew choices in the store, reach for Ten Barrel. Their Pray for Snow beer donates 1% of profits to protect our winners. They support winter sports athletes. They produce ski and snowboard movies and are even making a mobile brew pub on a snowcat. How cool is that? Check it all out at 10barrel.com and drink beer outside. Enter our Snowsog giveaway on Instagram. I already told you how to do it. It's so easy. Rate and review us on whatever platform you listen to your podcast on. That's how you can say thank you to me for doing this podcast. I really appreciate your feedback. Thanks to Mike T for the artwork. Music today was No Way Out by Grammatic and West Coast by Ryan Little. Made possible through the permission of the artist or the Creative Commons license found at freemusicarchive.com. Send me feedback. I want it. Check out contributor bios. Check out contributor bios and buy some gear to support the show on my website, www.theavalanchehour.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. Cheers.